Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Goodness Me, Australia's online one-stop shop for all your healthy pantry and snack essentials made with real ingredients, absolutely no nasties, and delivered straight to your door. The Goodness Me shop makes it easy to eat real food that makes you feel good. Head to goodnessme.com.au and use the code Leanne for 15% off. Hey crew and welcome to podcast number 97. Today's special one, we are going to do a Q&A with myself. So I get asked similar things all the time on social media. So I put a Q&A sticker box on my Instagram stories and I asked you guys what questions I should answer on the podcast. So I had an influx of questions, but I have chosen the top nine questions today that I think would benefit so many of you. And um, I will be answering those top nine for you today in a Q&A series. And my hubby David will even be joining us today for one special question. As you guys requested, he make a special appearance on the potty and we're going to make that happen before 100 episodes. Um, So he'll be making a special appearance later, but firstly, let's start off with question one. So the first question was, is soy milk okay to drink? I used to love it. And then I got told a few years ago that it's bad for your hormones. I realized that you drink soy milk in terms of myself. So I drink soy milk myself. And then this uh, lady is wondering, can she drink it again as she loves it? And is it healthy? So soy and soy derived foods, um, you know, such as tofu or soybeans are really rich in protein. They're rich in fiber. They've got vitamins, they've got minerals and antioxidants in them. They also contain soy isoflavonoids, which are believed to offer a variety of health um, and antioxidant benefits. So soy foods in general are actually really, really healthy. And there has been some uh, research that have shown that soy rich diets can help to improve heart health. They can help to lower blood pressure, blood sugar, and cholesterol levels. And some types of soy products can also help to improve fertility, reduce symptoms of menopause, and even protect against a certain type of cancers. So overall, I think that we do need some stronger research, but I think that soy is a very healthy food overall, and most people should actually be including it regularly from whole food sources. So when I say whole food sources, I mean minimally processed types of soy foods, things like soybeans, tofu, tempeh, edamame, unsweetened soy milks, and yogurts. These are considered superior to high processed ones such as, um, you know, a soy flavor, a soy protein bar or something like that. So, um, and there's also a little bit of research that shows that fermented soy products may of course offer additional benefits, particularly from a gut health perspective. Now, there is a little bit of, I guess, conflicting research, and there's a few things that I've read online um, that I'm sure you guys have seen on social media regarding the safety of soy. So you may have seen that, or you know, it's been quoted that it has estrogen-mimicking effects. It may affect your thyroid function. It could be an anti-nutrient. It may be feminizing in men, or if men eat too much soy, they're going to grow, you know, breasts, for example. So generally, all of these concerns, they're not actually supported by strong science. Most of it's just a little bit of, I guess, like hearsay. So there's a lot 
lot more research that's actually needed to confirm the above quotes, but I guess it really does come down to the amount of soy that you're consuming. So if you're consuming it, you know, a few times a week or one or two serves a day, that's absolutely okay. But if you're having, you know, six to eight servings of soy products a day, you're probably over overdoing it. The only, uh, I guess, uh, concern with and safety of soy, I would be sort of wary with is if you have issues with your thyroid. Now you absolutely do not need to give up soy products. Definitely check with your dietitian or your doctor. But for most hyperthyroid adult patients, you actually don't need to avoid soy altogether. You just need to ensure that you have adequate iodine content in your diet. So I guess the bottom line on soy is that it's a really unique food. It's been widely studied for its estrogenic and anti-estrogenic effects on the body. And it has shown many times in research to... um, basically have either a beneficial or a neutral effect on various health conditions. So I think that's a wonderfully healthy food. I myself drink soy milk. That's my preference for milk, of course, because it is the most nutritionally similar milk to cow's milk. It's high in protein. It's got calcium in there. Um, So that's sort of my... um, my preference in terms of milk. And I like the nuttiness, particularly in a coffee. So because it is the most nutritionally similar to milk, I do recommend soy milk, particularly for my clients. And unlike some other types of plant-based milks, you know, it has that protein content there. Whereas, you know, you can get some almond milks with with added protein in there, but they cost like six or $7 a liter. Whereas soy milk is very affordable um, from a milk-based perspective. It's sort of only, you know, maybe $1.50, $2 a liter as well. So I definitely think that you can drink soy milk. I, per- I think that it's perfectly okay to drink. I don't think it has a negative effect on hormones. And as I said, the majority of the research around soy and soy milk um, really does show either a positive or a neutral effect on our health. So I definitely think that it's something that I'm happy to recommend regularly for my clients. All righty, question two. So how long should I stay in a calorie deficit for if I only want to lose a few kilos? All right, so I guess this is a difficult one without knowing uh, the person that asked this question, their baseline, that sort of thing. But I think it really does come down to your baseline. Where are you starting at? So how long have you dieted for beforehand? How are you metabolically? Do you have good muscle mass? You know, Because if you're somebody that has rarely ever dieted, your weight doesn't really fluctuate too much. Most people from that health, starting from that sort of good, healthy baseline could probably easily diet for 10 to 12 weeks and be absolutely fine, get off a couple of kilos and return back to their sort of maintenance level calories. But if you come from a background of yo-yo dieting, you have large weight fluctuations, shorter deficits are probably going to be much better for you. And I think the thing is a lot of people just swing wildly between different diet, different diet, different diet, lose the weight, regain it, lose it, regain it. They never really give their body time to just sit at sort of equilibrium or just sit and maintain for a while. So sometimes for many people, maintenance is a really huge win. So just, I guess, bear that in mind. So I would assess if you're putting yourself into a calorie deficit, assess how you're traveling each week. If you feel like you have genuinely stalled, as in your weight hasn't moved for three to four weeks, despite being in a proper calorie deficit, despite being super consistent, if that weight is not budging after a solid three to four weeks of consistency, it's probably your body's way of saying, hey, you know, I need to come out of a deficit now. I actually just need a few more calories and I need to return back to maintenance level. Now, calorie deficits are things that are very difficult because so much of it, there's so many things that go into it. Um, and particularly even in terms of where your baseline is, what you're starting from, how large your deficit 
visitors? How long that deficit's going to be? Do you need a diet break? Should we return back to maintenance? This is why we always recommend working with a professional such as a sports dietitian one-on-one. They can monitor you and they can guide you week by week. I personally adjust most of my client plans, either most weeks or most fortnights, depending on how they're progressing, both physically and mentally, because calorie deficits are as much a mental battle as they are a physical battle. So I know that you probably think that you can do it yourself. You can do these calculations yourself, but there is so much more that goes into fat loss than just calculating a calorie deficit or thinking that you can stick to that. So that's my plug for working one-on-one with a nutrition professional. If you need your teeth cleaned, you'll go see a dentist. If you need your car fixed, you'll go and see a mechanic. If it's tax time and you want to save some dollars, you'll go and see an accountant. If you want real results, go and see a sports dietitian, guys, particularly around fat loss and if you want to make it sustainable. So I hope that that gives you a little bit more, I guess, clarity in terms of how long you should stay in a deficit for, but it really is dependent on the person. People in larger bodies can stay in calorie deficits generally for longer. I've had clients who are, you know, over hundred kilos and they've been in deficits for four or five months and they've been fine and they've been consistently dropping each fortnight. Whereas I've had a lot leaner clients who, you know, after four to six weeks, their body's almost like fighting back from there. And they're like, yeah, we know we've dropped a good, you know, two, two and a half, maybe three kilos. And it's sort of like they will just stall from there. And so it's, you know, time to return to maintenance calories um, and sort of stay there for a while to give that body a bit of a break and allow that sort of metabolic rate to restore a little bit. So it really does depend on your baseline, where you're starting at, I guess, um, the type of body you're starting in and, and what the, what the goals are. So I hope that gives you guys a little bit of clarity around that question. So question three is an exciting one. So this one says, this is one for you and David. How is the pregnancy going? What model of care are you doing and how are you both preparing? So David and I are going to answer this one together. And please let me know what you guys think of David's special guest appearance on the podcast. He's a little bit nervous. So um, be nice to him, guys. (laughs) Everybody, how's it going? Uh, It's David here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm usually the one uh, behind the camera pressing the button, so I'm not really used to this, but uh, we'll give it a go. <laughs> um, so tomorrow we're 22 weeks pregnant. Um, so, yeah, it has gone by pretty fast. Yeah, only 18 weeks to go. And uh, in terms of the model of care we're using, um, we're going through private health care. Um, so we're going through the Mata Mother's private hospital, um, but uh, Leanne is very uh, keen on doing a natural birth. So mm-hmm. we're going to try and focus on sort of the, the hypnobirthing principles. So we've got a couple of antenatal classes lined up and hypnobirthing classes lined up in the lead up that uh, we're keen to go to. Yeah. So I think my biggest thing is that um, I think I get sort of a lot of anxiety. And being our first bub, we sort of want to be in the hospital system, but we don't want it to feel too sort of like clinical and hospital. So we're very much going to try and make the birthing room very calm and natural and utilize a lot of the hypnobirthing principles. Hopefully we can, you know, labor in the um, the tub and the shower and do lots of walking. I definitely mm, don't want to spend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't want to spend the whole labor like lying on my back in a hospital bed. Um, so yeah, that's our, that's our goal is a natural birth. Um, and then we've got a wonderful OB and we decided to save heart and do private healthcare here in Australia because, again, just with my anxiety, I think the more appointments we have, the better. And we've got a really good OB, don't we? Yeah, yeah. He's really friendly. Yeah, and he answers yeah. all my millions mm. of yeah. questions. 
I mean, like obviously we don't want to discount um, other other forms of labour and birthing processes, but uh, we're aiming for the natural pregnancy at this stage. But I mean, you get what you get on the day, don't you? So who knows? Yeah. And some people have said to me, you know, why don't you do a home birth? And, you know, it, it may be something I'd consider for future kids, but I think just being the first one and, you know, David comes from sort of a family of doctors. Mm-hmm. I think we just sort of want to be close by just in case anything's needed. You know, I've had a few friends that needed emergency C-sections and that sort of thing. So I think we just want to sort of um, have have all options available to us, put it that way. <laughs> and we're booked into for some antenatal classes as well with our hospital. So um, we're doing a class on active birth. We're doing a class called When Nature Needs a Helping Hand. Uh, we're doing the physio class, which we're excited yep. about. I think that'll be good. Um, David will learn some good techniques he can help me with in labor. Um, we're doing a breastfeeding class. So the goal is obviously to breastfeed, um, hopefully we're able to. Um, and there's also a class on pain management as well. So all of the classes were offered through the hospital that we're going through um, for a small cost. And, you know, our goal is just to feel as, I guess, knowledgeable and empowered as possible, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to have a birth plan, but at the same time, we're going to be very flexible to that. So I've sort of said to David, when I get stressed or a bit overwhelmed, he, you keep a very cool head, whereas I don't mm. so much. So David's going to be making all the decisions on the day. So he's very much, he's come to every appointment, every scan. Um, you're going to come to all the classes. So he'll be making all the big decisions on the day so that I can just sort of hopefully focus on getting through and having a healthy baby into the world. Yeah, that's the end of the game. So, And then just quickly for you guys at home, uh, we're reading five books. So these books are highly recommended from family and friends. So far I've read three, David's read one, and two of them I'm yet to read, but they're all highly recommended. So the first one was What to Expect When You're Expecting by Hardy Murnoff. So I found this book quite basic. Murkoff, yeah, okay. Yep, you're much better at pronunciation <laughs> than I am. <laughs> I don't know. It's got a K in there. <laughs> David is much um, – you sort of flicked through it, didn't you? And you, you thought it was mm. fairly basic too. So I think if you, you're you not really quite sure what to expect through pregnancy, if you haven't had many friends or family that have been pregnant or had babies, this is a really, really good place to start. Um, the book that I loved was Juju Saunders' Birth Skills. So David's – currently reading this, I found that so empowering in terms of for those that want to have a natural birth. What did you, I know you're sort of halfway through it at the moment. What are your thoughts at the moment on Gigi's Uh, book? Yeah, no, I mean, it it really emphasizes sort of movement and um, just getting those sort of skills in your head through repetition um just so when you get there on the day and it all starts happening and there's a flurry of activity you're just on autopilot so hopefully um between the two of us we'll have a sort of five to ten techniques we can just sort of cycle through um as the labor intensifies. Mm. And then the third book is Inner May Gaskin, It's Guide to Childbirth. I'm probably halfway through this book. And again, I love it. I find it super empowering. I definitely recommend that one again, if your goal is a natural birth. And the two that we were highly recommended that we're both yet to read. Um, one of them is Midwife Cass. It's called The First Six Weeks. And the other one is Tizzy Hall called Save Our Sleep. Um, and again, I think a really good sleep routine for bub is super important um, as early on as possible. So they're both ones that I think David and I will be reading together before bub comes as well. Question four, advice for how to work with your body changes around the midsection once you hit 50. 
So I'm assuming here that we're talking about menopause. So for our listeners at home who don't have, I guess, an understanding of menopause, uh, it's quite simply, uh, it's a women's, it's a woman's final menstrual period. So this is caused by a shift in our sex hormones, preventing the ovaries from releasing any more eggs, which ultimately leads to a drop in hormones. Um, and the two big ones we're talking about here are estrogen and progesterone. So due to this drop in hormones, a lot of women find that they put on excess belly fat during menopause. So the weight gain itself cannot be directly associated with the shift in hormones and menopause, but there are a few factors that may contribute. So the first one being a loss of muscle mass, which is generally associated with aging. So I'm pretty sure the research says, don't hold me to this guys, but something, something like once you hit about 40 years of age, you lose about one or 2% of your muscle mass from, from 40 years of age. So once we're sort of around that 50 and we're well into menopause, our muscle mass has decreased significantly, particularly if we're not doing anything to maintain it or build it. Now, other factors that may affect uh, some fat gain are simple things like lifestyle changes. You might have left full-time work, which may cause you to have a bit of a change in your routine. So instead of preparing and eating regular meals or doing a certain type of exercise, you may move more towards sort of that irregular eating pattern. You might eat out more, you might socialize, you might drink a little bit more wine at, you know, ladies lunch on a Tuesday. And plus a lot of women, uh, I guess, favor changes in the type of physical activity they're doing. They may move from types of exercise like higher intensity or weight-based exercises or group-based sports to more gentle type of activities such as swimming, walking, or yoga. And sometimes they're just not uh, as conducive for um, for metabolism, put it that way. So one of the best things that we can do once we hit about 40 years of age plus, particularly during menopause, is actually to do some form formal strength or resistance training about three to four times a week. This is going to support our bone health and our metabolism. And from a nutrition perspective, what the research is telling us in terms of menopause is that a Mediterranean style diet with lots of lean protein and a diversity of fibers and vegetables is one of the best dietary patterns that we can follow. So for some women, a slightly lower carbohydrate intake may be helpful, particularly if you're not training hard or you're not training well and you're doing no formal strength training. So this is, of course, another plug for working one-on-one with a dietitian because during menopause, there are a lot of key nutrients and key areas to watch out for. So for example, a high calcium requirements. And this is interesting because I know we just had a chat about soy foods and I'm pro soy foods. I think they're very beneficial for your health, but there's actually been some research that shows that soy foods during menopause um, can actually be really helpful because they contain phytoestrogen. So this is a type of plant version of estrogen, and it may help to mimic estrogen and bind to some of those estrogen receptors. Therefore, this may help to reduce some of the symptoms associated with low estrogen, which can occur before and also during menopause. So this research is sort of new and emerging. We do need more, um, but you know, there's little harm in trying. So eating more or trying to include more whole food soy uh, based foods such as we talked about tofu, um, you know, tempeh, edamame, those sorts of things um, alongside, of course, a healthy diet. So I don't think there's any harm in trying that, even if that research isn't super strong at the moment. I definitely think that a Mediterranean style diet with an inclusion of some soy based products a few times a week is absolutely going to help during menopause. And if you guys want to know a little bit more about um, perimenopause, 
listen to my uh, new podcast, which I've got. So I've of course got this podcast, Leanne Ward Nutrition. I've also got another podcast called The Nutrition Couch, which I run with my colleague of mine, Susie Burrow. Um, You guys might have seen her on TV. She's a sunrise dietitian. Um, Episode 14, Susie and I chat on The Nutrition Couch about perimenopause. So if you wanted to go and listen to that, um, it's a quick chat, but we sort of break down perimenopause and some of the research there as well for you guys. I'm interrupting this podcast for a healthy break from our episode sponsor, Goodness Me. The most difficult thing I find when it comes to healthy supermarket shopping is trying to compare all the nutrition labels. Goodness Me Shop will save you the headache, time and hassle with a one-stop shop for all your healthy pantry essentials and cooking needs. Goodness Me believes everyone deserves to eat real food that makes them feel good. And this is exactly what you can expect. All of their products are nutritionist approved, so you'll no longer have to pace up and down the store aisles checking all the labels. Goodness Me Shop sells everything from nut butter, granola, protein bars, sauces, dressings, and even non-alcoholic beverages. With 3,000 plus products, they guarantee to tick everything off your supermarket shop. Head to goodnessme.com.au slash shop to start shopping for real food. Use my code Leanne, that's L-E-A-N-N-E, for 15% off. Now let's jump back into our episode. Alrighty, we're up to question five. Question five is from a listener and it says, how do I stop emotionally eating in the middle of a trauma? So this is a tough question. And firstly, I wanted to start off by saying, I am so sorry that you were going through a trauma. Um, Please, please link in with a professional like a psychologist or even chat to somebody completely anonymously through something like Beyond Blue, Kids Helpline, or even something like Lifeline. There are lots of free services um, available. You can call in on the internet. So please make sure that you're not going through this alone um, because there's been so much change and disruption in the world lately that the last thing that I'd want you to do is think that you have to deal with this by yourself. So first off, I'm here for you. I love you please get some support. Um, And next, remember that, I guess, in terms of that question between the trauma and the emotional eating, obviously you're reaching out because you want to stop this emotional eating. So I want you to remember that with emotional eating, we're often looking for some sort of comfort or some other way to self-soothe our body and our mind. So it is completely okay to eat sometimes when we are stressed or sad. That is completely okay. But this cannot be our only coping strategy. And if it's our only coping strategy, that's where we run into problems. Um, You know, we can gain weight quite rapidly. We can have, you know, a lot of health conditions associated with rapid weight gain and chronic diseases long term. So it's not a great thing for us long term. But occasionally, if we're sad or we're stressed or we're upset, it's okay to eat. But we just don't want to make that our only coping strategy. So my recommendation for you would be to write out a list of things that you can do that make you feel better, that make you feel soothed, that make you feel comforted, or that help you to reduce sadness or anxiety. So these things might be just really simple things. You could call a friend, you could call your mum, you could do a little bit of journaling. Sometimes just taking these thoughts out of your head and putting them down on paper can help so much more than you actually realize. You could do some meditation. You could have a hot bath. You could go for a walk outside in the sunshine. There's so many things that you can do. And I can't sit here and tell you what's going to be best because we're all different. And what I really, I guess, realized from working with so many clients through different things, such as traumas and emotions and that sort of thing, is that 
every strategy works for for different people and every day you might need a new strategy. So one day it might be great that you can go walk outside in the sunshine and the next day you're just going to think, you know what, that's not going to cut it. It's not going to help me today. But today you might want to do some meditation, but tomorrow it might be a hot bath that really gets you through. So I'd really encourage you to have a list of I'd say minimum six or seven, but ideally at least 10 different strategies that you can pull from on a day-to-day basis. Now make this list on a piece of paper. Don't just have it up in your head and then hang up that piece of paper somewhere visible, maybe on the pantry door, maybe on the bathroom mirror, maybe on the fridge. And even if you eat 50% of the time, but the other 50% of the time you choose an alternative activity from your list, that is still massive progress. Remember guys, my mantra on this podcast is 10% better. I'm not saying to you to overcome this emotional eating in the middle of your trauma, you have to stop eating whenever you're sad. No, I'm just saying we want to make progress from here. So if you use that list 20 or 30% of the time, it's still better than you using that list not at all. So don't feel like a failure or don't feel like you haven't been good enough if, you know, out of 10 times you use those strategies two or three times. It's all still progress and your brain remembers how that helped you to self self soothe and feel confident in that moment and it'll be a little bit easier to utilize some of those strategies next time. And also speaking of healing, Often, you know, all we want to do is numb the pain and sometimes eating large amounts of food can help us to feel numb. And when we're in the middle of a trauma, we just want to feel numb. I know that's how we want to feel it. I know that we think that's what's going to be helpful. But what I would really encourage you to do is to just sit with those negative feelings and emotions. Feel the feelings. As hard and as painful as it is, if you don't sit with those feelings, You can't heal and you can't move on from there. Sit with them. Whether you have tears streaming down your face, whether you're throwing things across the room, you have to allow your body and your mind to feel those negative feelings and emotions in order for you to heal and move on. Now, if it is too difficult for you to sit with those feelings, please, please, please enlist the help of a psychologist or one of those services that I mentioned beforehand, such as Lifeline, Beyond Blue or Kids Helpline. And my final strategy, which I really hope will help you because I know that overcoming a trauma must just feel like Mount Everest, like you're never going to get to the top, you're never going to get over that mountain. But what I've really found helpful with a lot of my clients who have gone through some deep traumas in the past is a daily gratitude practice. So when you're going through a trauma, it's difficult to see anything else but that trauma. But a daily gratitude practice can help you to focus on something else. It can help you to focus on the other positives in your life. And whether it's just that today, the sun's shining and I opened the window and I got some sunlight on my face. If that's what you're grateful for today, wonderful. Write it down and cherish it. Um, Whatever that gratitude is, no matter how big or how small, try to make your goal every day to write down at least one thing that you're grateful for, because I I can't tell you enough how much a daily gratitude practice can honestly change and transform your life over time. If what you're focusing on every day is the positives in your life versus the negative things in your life, we want to try and be grateful for the things that we do have, no matter how small they are. And it will really help with the healing um, long-term as well. Question six, what is the healthiest takeaway option? So pretty much anything can be made healthy if you make it yourself, but I get it. Takeaway 
easy option. Sometimes we want to don't want to cook a he. So my two favorite, I've got a couple of favorite takeaway options. My go-to is probably Vietnamese. It's my favorite takeaway option because they tend to flavor their meals with like herbs and spices and fresh salads. Everything's nice and fresh. It's crunchy. It's based on like Vietnamese just reminds me of summer. I love it. My two favorite options from Vietnamese are either a lemongrass chicken salad bowl or the tofu summer rolls. They're my two favorite go-to healthy takeaway options. I also love a good Mexican meal. Now, just be careful with Mexican. Um, you know, sometimes if we're loading it up with guacamole and cheese and sour cream, um, we can run into trouble, particularly if we're having a massive bowl of corn chips and guacamole and a, um, you know, a cocktail and that's how we're starting our meal, we can run into a little bit of problems. But in terms of healthy Mexican, I love fish tacos. Depending on the size, I might not eat all the tacos. Like if I get served three or four tacos, sometimes I might just have one or two of the full tacos and just eat the filling out of the rest. So an easy way to kind of decrease the calorie load of the meal is to perhaps not eat all of the the tortillas or the wraps that it comes in and also really try to find a place that does grilled chicken rather oh sorry grilled fish rather than battered fish in the tacos and I also love the vegetarian bean or the chicken taco salad bowl so generally at Mexican they serve these like enormous salad bowls in these huge like fried tortilla shells, um, which I think is awesome. Like I think it's so fancy. I generally just kind of pick at the side of the tortilla. So I sort of leave about 70% of it because the meal itself is so filling. It's generally got um, salads and rice and beans. And sometimes I'll add chicken. Other times I'll just have a vegetarian. And then I generally pick um, a fat serve. So I'll have either cheese or guacamole. And then it's generally finished off with um, and a bit of salsa and some fresh herbs on top. So that in itself is generally really feeling for me. Um, and I don't really feel the need to have the majority of the tortilla shell, but I do sort of like picking a little bit off the side of it. And finally, I would say that sort of David and I, one of our go-tos is Thai. We do get Thai takeaway probably once or twice a month. So for us, we generally get a Penang chicken curry and we get a stir fry with prawns. Um, and then we just add a little bit of rice sort of to the side of our dish. So I think in terms of the healthiest takeaway options in terms of Thai, look for the dry stir fry options. So in Thai, just be wary of your rice portions because Thai can be a great healthy option. But if you're going to eat half a container of rice with that, you might be blowing out your calories. In terms of my favorite stir fries, when I say the dry stir fry options, I'm really looking for them to be flavored with like herbs and spices versus things like curries and noodle dishes. They're quite heavy in terms of the oils and the coconut cream. So I wouldn't say that they're generally a healthy takeaway option, absolutely delicious, and you can definitely have them, but they're probably not the healthiest options. My favorites are the dry stir fries. So, you know, stir fry prawns or tofu or chicken with chili and basil, garlic and pepper is a good one, the ones with oyster sauce or the ginger and shallots. They're probably my four favorite stir fry bases to have if I was going to get Thai takeaway. So I think for me, three go-tos are Vietnamese, Mexican or Thai. I find that it's really easy to find a healthy option and you can sort of make slight adjustments based on how much rice or how much noodle you're going to have. Are you going to eat all of the tacos or are you just going to eat the inside of the filling? I find that it's, it's easy to get around and sort of pick and choose some healthy options off those types of menus versus things like Italian. Generally, I would call that like a soul food meal because if I'm going to Italian you know, I'm going to go eat Italian. I'm sure he's going to get a pizza versus sitting in an Italian restaurant and ordering a salad. Not that that's a bad option, but if I'm going to get Italian, I'm going to get pizza. <laughs> so if I'm really looking for a healthy takeaway option, my go-tos would be Vietnamese, Mexican, or Thai. Question seven, what are your top tips for maintaining consistency? 
I love this question because you guys have clearly been listening to me on my potty and on social medias for a long time now. And my main message is always be consistent. If you want results, you have to be consistent. And I think my top tip for maintaining consistency is that you have to love what you're doing. Like if you hate it, if you're like, oh, this sucks, I'm not enjoying it, I can't wait for it to be over, you're not going to be consistent. So you need to make it a lifestyle. And as like cliche as that is, you have to see yourself doing this in 12 months time or in two years time. Could I see myself doing the keto diet in 12 months time? Hell no. So I'm not even going to bother starting it because I know that I can't maintain it and I can't be consistent. Can I see myself exercising three or four times a week in 12 months time? Absolutely. Could I see myself exercising seven days a week in 12 months time? Probably not because in 12 months time, I'm going to have a little baby and I'm definitely not going to be able to exercise seven days a week. So what you're doing now, if you want to be consistent with it, Picture yourself doing it in 12 months time. And if you can't, if you're like, oh, I think I'm really going to struggle with that. Perhaps you need to reassess what you're doing now. Because I know so many people that say to me, I'm just doing this now until I lose the weight. And then once I lose it, I'll go back to normal. But guess what happens, guys? Once you stop doing whatever it is you were doing to lose the weight, once you stop that, you're going to put it back on again. So the most important thing about consistency is you have to genuinely enjoy it and can see yourself doing it long term. You also have to allow for flexibility. Actively add in things like soul foods and rest days. You cannot be perfect. Humans are not meant to be perfect. You can have, they don't need to be full cheat days or cheat weekends, but you can go out and have a glass of wine or an ice cream or some chocolate on a Tuesday. That is absolutely okay. The more flexibility you add into your lifestyle, the more it's going to last long-term and the more you're going to be able to be consistent long-term. So there was a massive study um, around weight loss that came came out from the US and it showed that people who had lost the most weight long-term and who had kept it off. And I'm talking like 10, 15 years, they followed these people for from memory, like over 10 or 20 years or something. It was a huge study. It was a great study. And one of the take-home messages was that these people, the reason that they were able to keep the weight off while others couldn't because they were consistent. They had similar traits. So they did similar things on weekdays as they did on weekends. They did the same thing on holidays than they did on usual days. They exercised and they ate salad, even if it was Christmas, even if it was Easter, even if it was their birthday. They still ate a salad on their birthday. They still went and exercised. They didn't blow out. They didn't fall off the bandwagon. They were consistent. They weren't too strict because being too strict very much leads to that, you know, all or nothing, black or white type of thinking where it's easy to fall off the wagon the minute you have one small slip up. So, you know my mantra, start with 10% better every day and work up to being 70 to 80% consistent. That's all you need to be. If you're consistent 80% of the time, I promise you, you will be able to maintain whatever you're doing long-term. And another tip that I find really helpful for consistency is to remember that you have so many opportunities every single day to eat well. Most of us will eat five or six times a day, you know, breakfast snack, lunch snack, dinner snack. That's six times a day. So each week you have 40 plus opportunities to eat well. And say, for example, you're someone that just kind of blows out on the weekend and you get to Monday and you feel like you're restarting over. Think about this. If you were to write off Friday night and Saturday and Sunday because you're like, well, I already ruined Friday. What's the point? I'll start again on Monday. You've now wasted 13 plus of those 40 plus opportunities that you had. Remember that. If you have a crappy breakfast and a crappy morning tea, you can still come back from here and have a good lunch. 
So in terms of maintaining consistency, aim for that 80% consistency every day. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can have a bit of chocolate. You can have a rest day. You can have a rest week or a rest month if you want, but try to be as consistent as possible without being perfect. That's probably my biggest tip. Be consistent whilst not being perfect. (laughs) Question number eight, what are your thoughts on store-bought protein bars? Okay, honestly, I think the majority of store-bought protein bars are far too processed. And my question for you would be, why are you eating a protein bar? Is it because you think that they're healthy? Because honestly, most store-bought protein bars are highly processed. They're expensive. And I would say that 90 to 95% of people just don't need them. I honestly think protein is overhyped, particularly in processed foods. We've got protein chips. We've got protein almonds. We've got protein chocolate. I just think we've gone a little protein crazy. Don't get me wrong. I am the first person to harp on about how important protein is. but Mostly in your main meals, most people will can get enough of protein in their main meals at their snacks. You know, if they don't have much protein in there, that's absolutely fine. But for a snack, five to 10 grams is absolutely more than enough for most adults aiming for fat loss. Look at your protein bar, count the ingredients. If you can't pronounce those ingredients, if there's more than one set of numbers in that list of ingredients, or if there's over six ingredients in total on the label, or If that label comes with a warning such as may have a laxative effect if consumed in excess, do you really want to be eating that? Do you really want to be putting that type of thing into your body? So I would say overall, I'm not really a fan of the majority of store-bought protein bars. They're just too highly processed. Remember, for more protein and less calories, you could have a tub of yogurt. You could have two boiled eggs. You could have a small tin of tuna, a small tin of beans. You're going to get more protein for less cost than a protein bar. So occasionally it's totally fine to use protein bars as like a convenient snack option if you're on the road traveling. But if you're at home or you're at work, stick to getting your protein from whole food sources. I promise you that it'll be far better for your health and your body long-term and your body's just going to be able to process and utilize it a hell of a lot easier than if you're dumping in a heck of a lot of chemicals and ingredients that you can't even really pronounce from a bar that's marketed as like super, super healthy. Most protein bars, I would say, have 10, 15, 20 ingredients um, that are just not needed for the majority of people. So I'm not really a fan. If you ask my opinion overall, I'd say no. I'd say if you really want, you can make it yourself, but is it needed? Most of us can get enough protein in through our breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Um, unless you had some serious, serious goals in I don't know, powerlifting, you had a condition where, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, burning far more protein than someone else. Um, I really don't think that for the majority of people, protein bars are needed. I think, you know, your, your snack should be things like Greek yogurt and veggie sticks and dip and fresh fruit and nuts, and maybe a few boiled eggs or some roasted chickpeas, a small tin of tuna, or, um, I don't know, some, some whole grain crackers with a bit of cottage cheese or hummus or something like that. They're far better options. They're still going to have protein in them. Sure. It's not going to be like 20 or 30 grams, like a protein bar, but it's going to be enough for the majority of people who are aiming for fat loss or even, um, you know, muscle gain, I think, you know, about five, 10 grams of protein in a snack is more than enough for the majority of people. Alrighty. Final question. Question nine, what foods did you eat to increase your fertility? And did you cut out anything before you were pregnant? Uh, okay. So let's start with the cutout thing first. So I didn't actually cut out anything when we were trying. Um, I did cut back on coffee and wine. So before we started trying, I would say that on some days, on a bad day, if I had a lot of work on and I was like, 
quite early and I was doing late night client calls, I might have two to three coffees. So I definitely cut that back to sort of one coffee or two shots a max a day. Um, and then once I found out I was pregnant, <laughs> lucky for me or unlucky for me, I couldn't stomach coffee for probably the first 15 or 16 weeks. After about week sort of 15, 16, I could have like a week, I'd say like quarter strength iced coffee. And then after about week 18, I could start um, enjoying one small coffee a day, which just had one shot in there. So for pregnancy, sort of one one to two shots of coffee a day max is recommended. Um, so I'm sort of about the one, one and a half shots of coffee a day at the moment. Um, but when we were trying, I definitely did cut back on the amount of caffeine I had. And of course, in terms of my wine intake, when we were trying, I cut back to sort of one glass, you know, one, two times a week max. And then of course, when I found out um, we were pregnant, I haven't drunk any alcohol since then. So it's been a very long, what are we now, 22 weeks without a glass of wine, but that's okay. I'm doing a very important job um, in terms of growing bub. So I'm happy to forego my wine for now. Um, so they were probably the two things I cut back on. Um, and then of course, cut out once I found out I was pregnant. Um, I think an important point to note here, um, it's not really going to help in terms of fertility, but it's very important to help prevent neuro tube defects is to, it's recommended to take folate about three months before you start trying. Um, so I was taking a folate supplement about three months before we started trying. Um, and I also went and got some blood tests from my doctor around that three months before we started as well, because specifically for things like iron and vitamin D, if you fall pregnant and you're already low in iron or you're already low in vitamin D or calcium, you're just trying to play catch up for the entire pregnancy, which is not going to be fun. And it's going to make it really difficult to get those nutrients in because it's hard enough to eat well when you're pregnant. If you're starting off with a low baseline with those particular nutrients, you're going to have a rough time. So I would definitely, if you're planning uh, to become pregnant, go and get some simple blood tests from your doctor. Make sure you're taking your folate supplement, cut back on coffee, and alcohol and um, make sure your levels of iron, vitamin D and calcium are within range um, before you get pregnant because you're just going to have a much easier time. Now, uh, in terms of foods for fertility, um, I was already doing most of these things, but I would recommend the following points, uh, which fertility dietitian Melanie McGrath actually covers in the podcast episode we did together. So on my podcast, of course, Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast, episode 64 is with Melanie and we talk all about foods for fertility. So the first one is to really focus on low glycemic index carbohydrates. So foods with a high GI can traditionally be, uh, you know, quite highly processed and quite high in sugar foods. So these can cause a little bit of sort of like inflammation and potentially even damage your eggs. So I would recommend swapping to lower GI foods. So swapping refined white bread for a multigrain or a sourdough, swap things like dates for prunes and swap things like corn chips for fresh corn on the cob. Second point is to optimize your fat ratio. When you're trying to fall pregnant, fat is very important for your fertility. So something like the traditional Mediterranean style diet has a really good fat ratio of, um, you know, one quote unquote bad fat for every one good fat. However, the typical Western diet has a fat ratio of 18 bad fats for every one good fat. So we definitely don't want to be following what we would call the typical Western style diet. We absolutely want to follow a traditional, more Mediterranean style diet. 
Uh, next point, you guys know how important uh, plant points are for your gut health. And while you're trying to fall pregnant for your fertility, we want to increase your intake of plant proteins as well. So having more plant proteins in your diet is going to A, naturally improve your fat ratio. But also there's been a study that found that swapping just 25 grams of animal-based protein to 25 grams of plant-based protein every day can actually boost your fertility by up to 50%. So looking towards a more plant-focused diet um, is something that can be really helpful for fertility. And the final point I'm going to make is actually around full cream milk. And this might surprise some people because there was actually a study that found that full cream milk was more beneficial for fertility than low-fat milk. So researchers found this compound called IGF-1, which they think is making the difference in terms of fertility. So there's more IGF-1 in full cream milk than there is in skim milk. And it's believed that this compound can actually help to assist in implantation and early growth and development of the embryo. So of course, that's quite, I guess, emerging research and a lot more of it needs to be done. But again, I don't think it's going to be harmful. And it's absolutely, if I was trying for a baby, definitely something that I, I would try. I personally didn't because I drink soy milk as my milk, like we've discussed. I don't tolerate um, you know, too much dairy very well, but it's definitely something that I would recommend for my clients. And then final, final point for you guys is to remember that it takes you to tango, right? So the male's diet is just as important as the female's. If the quality of the male's diet is poor, the quality of his sperm is going to be poor. If the quality of the male's diet is excellent, guess what, guys? The quality of the sperm is going to be excellent. So if you want to know more about the male diet and, and more fertility tips, please go back and listen to that episode 64 on my podcast with fertility dietitian Melanie. I think you guys will find it really helpful. So that is it for our Q&A today. I will be coming back next week for a part two. I've handpicked another nine awesome questions to answer for you guys, which I hope will help a, a really broad range of people listening. But please, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. Leave me a positive rating or review in the Purple Apple Podcast app. I would really, really appreciate it. And of course, um, tag me in your Instagram stories if you're listening to this episode and if you enjoy it and you found some value out of it because I would love to share your stories um, on my stories as well. And you can let your, your followers and your friends know um, how much you enjoyed my podcast. All right, guys, I will catch you in the next episode.